So when did you know you wanted to be a model? Hmm, I guess it would have to be the first time I went through the second grade. I caught my reflection in a spoon while I was eating my cereal, and I remember thinking, wow, you're ridiculously good looking. Maybe you could do that for a career. Do what? Be professionally good looking. Right. Welcome to Narratively Speaking, the podcast that explores the power of story in all its forms, its role in society, and how it helps to shape the ideas we think we believe in. I'm your work-in-progress host, Harv, and I hope you're having a bloody fantastic day. We are back to our original format. I wonder how you feel about that. I feel okay about it. I actually kind of miss doing this. I really enjoyed having uh, guests on. Um, I enjoyed it not being about me for a while, um, but admittedly, there's a side of me that uh, would love it to be about me all the time. So for the next half hour, let's just indulge my narcissism. But in all seriousness, uh, thanks so much to the guests who did decide to come on the show. I guess it's a bit of a risk. We talk about some zany things, and uh, I can imagine not wanting to associate with such a tinfoil hat wearing lunatic. Certainly, I've had a couple of people in private who have backed out of the podcast, possibly after listening to it. They didn't say why, but you never know, right? Um, Understandable, though. Not everybody wants to talk about uh, the nature of the universe or whatever, Um, conspiracy and mind control and uh, all these things that we tend to touch on while investigating the topic of story. So it's just back to the original trio, you, me, and Mike. So I asked you how you were, but I noticed you didn't ask me how I was. Well, let me tell you, I've been feeling a bit sick, to be honest. Been feeling a bit under the weather. And uh, I had Friday off. I just couldn't get out of bed. Spent most of the time in bed, a little bit of time on the toilet. Don't want to get into it. Um, But also, um, it really just got me thinking about, I don't know, the nature of illness and what caused it. And the reason I was thinking about it is because I've been feeling under the weather in general for a while, been having a bit of uh, what they call brain fog. And I know this is partially related to diet and probably a bit of stress. And I know all I need to do is eat better and exercise and it'll go away. And uh, I did a bit of that yesterday, and uh, it it does go away. I know how to fix it. But by the same token, I felt like I hadn't been getting good sleep and that somehow I needed uh, to shut down for a while, and I think that's what the illness really was. And I started wondering, is that, was that voluntary? Did I make myself sick somehow? You know, did I premeditate it? I kind of knew that I was going to be sick, it could have been that I just felt it coming on. But by the same token, I think I caused it on purpose. And it's a weird thing, the idea that you might become sick on purpose. But I suppose there's also uh, a basis in science. For this, you've got things like hypochondria and Munchausen syndrome, which is where you deliberately either keep yourself sick or someone in your care uh, to get sympathy 
or to keep people dependent, which was brilliantly portrayed in one of the subplots in The Sixth Sense, if you remember, where the woman was actually poisoning her own kid. So there are sort of psychological bases for deliberately making yourself sick. I don't think I was making some kind of cry for help, although to some extent I think there's a part of me that does want to uh, communicate to my work that I'm unhappy. Um, I know this because I've actually said to some of my work colleagues, I'm unhappy. It's a sign right there, pretty subtle one. Maybe you didn't pick up on it. Um, but yeah, if I'm being honest, maybe it was part of that. Having a sick day was a bit of a signal. But that's what this episode is about, I guess, because it got me thinking about what are the signals that we put out? And are these signals voluntary? Are they deliberate? Or are they involuntary signals? And I started thinking about the ways in which we communicate to each other uh, that are nonverbal and nonwritten and don't necessarily interface with the intellectual part of the mind. And I found that I could enumerate just dozens of them. I mean, just dozens of ways that we're communicating with each other all the time. And it's funny talking about this in a medium like a podcast because we don't have those nonverbal communications happening right now. You can't see what I'm doing with my hands. And trust me, you don't want to. Just kidding. I'm not masturbating, okay? It's, it's a joke. It's a joke, all right? If I was masturbating, it'd sound like this. And it doesn't, it clearly doesn't sound like that right now. That was me just doing that with my cheeks, by the way, like an idiot child making a bad joke. Anyway. What were we talking about? Yes, non-verbal signaling. So you can't see what I'm doing. So in some ways, podcasting is an intellectual exercise because it eliminates any of that uh, non-intellectual uh, communication. When I say non-intellectual, I mean non-conscious, I guess. not. It's not that it's intellectual. I think consciousness is the intellectual part of our minds, though. It's the bit where we think and we analyze and we come up with the correct answer and we believe in a single truth. Um, and I don't think all of our brain functions that way. In fact, I think a lot of the stuff that we pick up from each other, the nonverbal stuff, is very instinctive and it happens in the subconscious brain. So we're going to cover the spectrum of nonverbal communication from simple stuff like just basic body language right through to the possibility of electromagnetic communication directly between brains. There's this new age idea out there that somehow our brains can communicate in a way that sounds so much like telepathy, we might as well call it that. And while I'm open to that idea, and it's certainly well in keeping with the notion of a single consciousness experiencing itself through separation, I thought that today we could give a bit more love to the more physical and tangible ways in which we communicate with each other. The, the types of things that you're doing every day, but you don't necessarily think of because they're subconscious behaviors. This is great. Before you go into a meeting, uh -huh. if you stand with your legs apart and your hands on your hips and you hold what they call a high power pose, mm -hmm. you hold that for just two minutes and you will change your blood chemistry. Actually, your testosterone level <laughs> will rise, which is your power and dominance hormone, and your cortisol level, your stress hormone, will lower. So not only will you feel more confident mm -hmm. when you keep your shoulders back and have held this posture, of course, you do this in private, <laughs> right. but when you walk in, you have enough of that 
residual in your body mm -hmm. that you not only feel more confident, mm -hmm. but people perceive you that way. That's a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I am awesome. Yeah, it's amazing how awesome I am. What a tip. Stand there like a jackass before a meeting and it'll change your blood chemistry. Apologies for my American accent. It maybe doesn't even qualify as an American accent, but, you know, I had a crack. I had a crack. And uh, it's better if it doesn't poke out the top of my shorts. But yeah, it was interesting, uh, despite the fact that that woman is obviously one of these, you know, body language guru types making money out of uh, touring and selling books and spouting bullshit. I thought that was an interesting nugget that just maintaining a positive dominant stance, I guess, or a confident stance actually changes the chemistry. And I think we've all heard of these weird classes where people stand around and pretend to laugh and they get, uh, you know, dopamine and serotonin release as if they're really laughing. I do wonder if you fake laugh, do you get fake serotonin? I guess not. It can't be the same though, surely. Anyway, point being that these things are kind of bi-directional. So even something as simple as body language, while it does communicate to the people around you, it also changes your internal state, your chemistry, your brain activity, and your general emotional reactions. So I looked it up. There are 43 muscles in the face. And if that sounds like a lot, you and I are on the same page. Um, it is quite a few muscles. Uh, it makes you wonder about those CGI motion capture rigs, whether they've got enough little white dots to actually cover the range of human emotion that the face is able to express and whether that plays into the fact that from what I've seen in the trailer, uh, Battle Angel Alita is pure nightmare fuel as far as the Uncanny Valley goes. Um, won't be seeing that one because don't want nightmares about people with giant eyes. You know, I wish James Cameron would just do a human, you know, don't make him blue. Don't make him have giant eyes. Just do a human man. Let's see if that works. So yeah, 43 muscles. Uh, you got to wonder why the, it's not an even number. Face is symmetrical. Is there a nose muscle? Is it that one that makes you flare your nose out? Uh, I don't know. I can make mine wiggle like Samantha from Bewitched. But obviously the face is capable of a very subtle and nuanced range of expression. And it's betraying your internal thoughts all the time. Uh, I'm one of those people who's always told, uh, you know, you're a terrible liar. And I've just basically given up on that. And, uh, you know, I, I virtue signal till the cows come home that I'm an honest person. But the truth is I just can't get away with it. So someone asked me a question like, did you eat that entire block of chocolate on your own last night while drunk? And uh, I have to tell the truth. The answer is usually yes, I did. I, I did do that. I'm sorry. Was it your chocolate? I'll replace it. Oh, you want it now? Okay, I'll, well, I'll go to the 7-Eleven then. Okay, you can't get it at 7-Eleven. Fine, I'll... Where did you get it? Belgium? I'll fire up the Concorde. Anyway, if you study body language a little bit, you find there's all sorts of little tidbits that combine in order to, you know, get meaning and expression from what a person's doing with their body. 
And you'll find that most of the body language experts will tell you you need to look for clusters of three things. You can't just say, okay, I know this one thing about, you know, if people look up and to the left, they're thinking creatively, so they're probably lying. Um, you need to look for clusters of things because sometimes you might be looking up and to the left because you've got a little bit of uh, dust in your eye or or semen or something. And uh, if if that's the case, you know, you don't want to use that as a signal to mean something that it doesn't. However, um, you can get pretty accurate readings on people. And I've found this in my own experience. I used to have a, a friend, Timbo, who I've talked about before, the guy who committed suicide. And uh, one of the ways that he won me over and we became good friends is he taught me about women uh, and how to um, successfully woo them. Um, and as you can tell, just by the way I said woo them, that it, you know, it didn't exactly rub off, but he was a bit of a master of it. And I think the principles that he taught me were probably quite accurate. Uh, I was just probably not very earnest in my application of them. But he taught me things like uh, little body language tricks, like if you're sitting in a group, you can tell which guy the woman is interested in by which way her feet are pointing. She will point her feet at the guy that she is most attracted to. And of course, vice versa as well. It's not a gender specific behavior. Now, of course, uh, someone with club foot, uh, obviously don't use that principle. Um, but if you're attracted to women with club foot, you probably don't have a lot of competition anyway. So, you know, go for it. Just get in there and introduce yourself. So, you know, g'day, Limpy. I'm Doug. But um, yeah, he taught me that. He taught me uh, a technique, which I've always really enjoyed the idea of. Um, haven't really applied it very often. But if you're sitting in a bar and your friends are making you laugh and smile, that you should throw your smile at the person that you want to attract the attention of. You sit in a position where there's a woman across the bar, your friend makes a really funny joke. And instead of facing him while you laugh at his joke, you turn your face towards the woman across the bar. And I must say that particular technique uh, is actually quite effective, although you do look a little bit insane to your friends while you're doing it. Hmm. Maybe a dating tips podcast would work. Put it in the Trello. This is Dr. Michael Persinger, a neuroscientist who has argued that all phenomena, including consciousness, spiritual experiences, and even paranormal events, can be explained by physical mechanisms, and they can be verified using the scientific method. Since 1971, he has been researching electromagnetic field effects upon biological organisms. And some of his recent studies sound straight out of a sci-fi movie. Dr. Persinger has shown in the laboratory that magnetic brain stimulation can create mental states conducive to human telepathy. A recent experiment placed two people at a distance in different rooms. Each was surrounded by an identical computer-controlled magnetic field. When a light was flashed in one subject's eye, the person in the other room showed responses in their brain as if they saw the flash of light. As Dr. Persinger stated, we think that's tremendous because it may be the first macro demonstration of a quantum connection or so-called quantum entanglement. Wait, wait, wait. Hold up. I hear you say you were going to try and keep this grounded and physical and tangible. And now you're back at these brain crystals or whatever the fuck that was. What gives Harvey? I was just thinking 
why is it that we find the idea of electromagnetic communication so implausible? Or at least most of us do, I guess. Some of us, many of us, don't have the stats. Perhaps you think this is quite a plausible thing and you engage in ESP every day and if you do, stay the fuck away from me because I don't want my dark, fucked up thoughts being read by a freak like you. But yeah, it is generally considered more far-fetched. But why is that? And I thought about this and I realized it's probably not really any more far-fetched than any of the other non-verbal forms of communication that we're talking about. The main difference is that when it comes to electromagnetic fields, we don't have any sensors to detect those. The other forms of communication fall within the five senses. So we can see the nonverbals. We can smell in some cases, in my case especially. Uh, if, if you want to know what I'm thinking, just take a whiff, or at least what I had for breakfast. But yeah, the within the realm of the five senses, we consider everything credible. When it's outside of those five senses, even though it's a demonstrable physical phenomenon, we still doubt it because our five senses can't pick it up. So let's talk about physical signaling, though, because I think this happens on an even deeper level than just body language. I think we also create permanent markers of our stories on our bodies. And I'm not just talking about scars and things like that, but you could argue perhaps that's why people are cut. So people who uh, injure themselves deliberately uh, to be able to feel pain or to release the pain or the energy that they feel. And it really does come back to pain, I think, in a lot of ways. Much like addiction is an expression of pain, so are some of the physical things that we do to our bodies. Uh, cutting is a good example of that, but you have much milder ones as well, like, say, tattoos, for instance. We get tattoos to remember where we came from, what to live by, because sometimes we need a reminder. People can be mean to us. You're going to want to scare them sometimes. People will look at you all inked up and expect you to be a certain way. Show them something they didn't expect. Life is full of pain. Most of it we didn't ask for. It just happened to us. So when we choose to feel pain, there's a very good reason for it. Whether we've been planning our tattoos for five years or five seconds, tasteful, noble, beautiful. Whether the tattoo tells the story of a, of a lifetime or just one crazy night. We took control, we paid the money, we stepped up to that counter and said, I want this on me forever. We made the choice. It's interesting because uh, even in that, I guess, upbeat, inspirational little video, which is actually an ad for a TV show, they still talk about pain and suffering and marking your skin permanently to remind you of that pain. Most people's tattoos are in some ways spiritual, at least to them, if they're not religious symbols. 
They're symbols of something that's happened in their lives. And it's probably no coincidence that the process of getting a tattoo is particularly painful. There may actually be a way to get a tattoo that's completely painless. But I think if there was, uh, most people would opt for the painful method. In fact, I know some people go to New Zealand and get the, uh, the Maoris to use traditional methods to uh, put the ink in their skin. And that's got to be painful because they, you know, they, they're basically using twigs and shit like that, I would imagine. I don't actually know. Uh, should have researched that. I've probably gone ahead and been culturally insensitive yet again. But yes, I know what you're asking, and I do have a tattoo. You'll never guess which event in my life my tattoo symbolizes to me, although you might not know it if you saw it, but I've got the Family Guy monkey on my arm. And uh, yes, I hear you say that is probably a copyright violation, but I'd like to see them, uh, you know, remove it. I'm not sure what they would do there, just cut out a little square of skin, perhaps. But yeah, the angry monkey from The Family Guy symbolizes to me one of the funniest moments I've ever had with Timbo before he committed suicide. And uh, he was telling me just about the episode of The Family Guy where the backstory of the angry monkey is revealed and he comes up the stairs and finds his monkey wife with another monkey. and. Uh, He's wearing a suit and stuff, and it just, the whole thing, the way he told it and all of the details just made me laugh. I think I just we just laughed together all afternoon. So it was a joyous moment, but it also symbolized my pain at the time. And to be honest, um, after the suicide, I became a bit of an angry monkey myself. So there was a couple of layers in the symbolism there. That's, of course, ignoring the other tattoo that I got on the same day, the one that I got on my penis that said, this isn't the biggest penis in the world, but it's got to come pretty bloody close. So, so these physical expressions are clearly voluntary ones, but what about health-related ones? And this kind of comes full circle back to my question originally, did I become sick on purpose? What about things like uh, pimples or getting circles under your eyes. What about obesity? I've often thought of my weight, and I'm a heavy guy, if you haven't already heard. I've often wondered if, and this is a pretty depressing thought, but I've often wondered if obesity isn't a form of soft suicide in a way, because we all know what to eat to eat healthy. And yes, I have covered in the past the stories we tell about food and how confusing it can be, but we do. We know carrots are healthy, don't we? I mean, we know what we can do. We could just eat less if we're obese, right? At a minimum, we know that would work. We know going to the gym would work, and we don't do these things a lot of the time. So isn't that a form of voluntary body shaping or body metamorphosis? Do I do it to myself on purpose? Is this something that I feel I deserve or that fits my image of myself in some way that I express it physically like this? And there are other things like that, you know, um, dental health or uh, skin rashes, um, whether your eyes sparkle or whether your skin glows. We think of these things as involuntary, but are they really? 
Are they things that our subconscious is expressing on our behalf? I mean, we know that depression can lead to a poor diet. In a lot of ways, the very concept of comfort food is a mechanism that creates this symbiotic relationship between your attractiveness to others and how attractive you feel on the inside. Is the structure of your face 100% determined by your genes? Or can you change the bone structure of a person's face without surgery? Here we have a 10-year-old boy with a strong jawline and overall good-looking face, who went on to develop flat cheeks, a receded chin, a weak jawline, and a slight hook in the nose by the age of 17. If this was the work of genes, why would they work hard to make a good-looking face until age 10, but slack off after that? Well, right around age 10 the boy got a pet gerbil, which he kept in his bedroom. He was allergic to the animal and his nose became stuffy and obstructed, forcing him to separate his lips, lower his tongue, and open his mouth, otherwise he couldn't breathe. Next, take a look at these two brothers. Ben has a slightly flatter and longer face, where Quentin's face seems to have grown more forwards rather than vertically. I think most would agree that Quentin's face is a bit more attractive. So, did Quentin just get lucky and get the better genes? Probably not, because what's striking about these brothers is that they are identical twins. The only difference is that one had traditional orthodontic treatment, and the other was treated by Dr. John Mew, with what's called an orthotropic treatment. Orthotropics and its principles are extensively discussed on the Orthotropics YouTube channel by Drs. Mike and John Mew. Simply put, it is a method for achieving proper development of the face. Developed in 1966, the general goal of orthotropics is to guide the upper and lower jaws to grow forwards. So I came across this video a few weeks ago, I guess. It was before I decided to do this topic. And in some ways, it's what inspired me to take this topic on because I was unaware of this idea. And the concept is that you can use the posture of your tongue to change the way your face develops. And that you can even do this later in life. They even sort of imply in the video a bit later that a lot of the celebrities that we see are coached in how to hold their tongue and their jaw to make sure that their faces develop in a more good-looking way. And that's, to me, a pretty fascinating idea as someone who's not good-looking, um, that I could just hold my tongue against the roof of my mouth for a while, several years, I think it takes, but and that uh, eventually I'd be giving Brad Pitt a run for his money. But I guess the question is, why would this be the case? And I think the answer is just in simple biology. And it's in a way another form of sexual signaling. If you're sick as a kid, then the shape of your face will make you less attractive to the opposite sex when you're older. And why is that important? Well, maybe it's not in some cases. Maybe it's a bit of an unfair assessment. But you can imagine in an anthropological sense that it would have a, a sense of utility for this to happen, that you would actually involuntarily, by the way you hold your face, indicate your internal health to the outside world. And I think this is really the key to it all. If we feel on the inside that we're not worthy or that we have low self-esteem and we don't think that we're attractive to the opposite sex, 
we actually express that in so many different ways that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'm not saying the tongue posture is the key to a happy life. Uh, I don't even think that attracting the opposite sex is the key to a happy life, particularly, as you know, I'm the story guy. But it's just interesting from the perspective that your body is expressing your story in so many different ways all the time that we're not even aware of it, or at least we're not aware of it on a conscious level, but subconsciously we're picking up these signals all the time. And we know that this stuff exists, these signals exist, because there are people out there who take advantage of it, like, say, mentalists who, who go on a stage and pretend they can read people's minds. They do it by picking up these signals and being more consciously aware of the signals that they're getting from people in the audience. But at the end of the day, the point is really this. You're screaming your story from the rooftops all the time, whether you know it or not, and that this is part of our essence as human beings. This is how we operate. And maybe through art, we get an opportunity to control that story a little bit more and to put it out in a more deliberate way, to filter it through our consciousness, to derive meaning and put that out there into the world. And can you really be happy if you're not expressing your story? And I guess that's why we say here at Narratively Speaking, life happens. We're just the storytellers. <laughs>